Hey Magic players, new and old, welcome back to No Sense Magic. If you're not following us on Twitter, probably should, it's at No Sense Magic. So what today we're going to be covering is the basics. Now I know for you older players, this is going to be boring or whatnot, but let's be, let's face the facts. We all start from somewhere. Some of you may have had a great mentor along the way, some of you were self-taught, or some of you were taught very little. The point is, is that this is a journey about learning and having fun, and we all have to start somewhere. So we can all use the basics, um, and it doesn't hurt to refresh ourselves. So today we're going to start off on, there are five basic colors to the magic color wheel. We have white, which is a plains, blue, that's an island, black is a swamp, red is a mountain, and green is a forest. These are the basic building colors to any deck. A key element to remember is all mana is colorless, but all colored mana isn't colorless. For me, honestly, this is the best advice that my mentor ever gave me. And when I first heard that, like, that made no sense, but it makes total sense. Like, you know, you can pay anything that has just a generic mana cost and with any color you want and then whatever the color requires. These basic lands, plains, island, swamp, mountain, and forest, have no CNC or a converted mana cost. For any basic deck to operate, you will need land or mana. This is what you will use to cast cards from your hand, exile, or graveyard to the battlefield. Unless a card has a zero CMC, you have to pay land or mana to cast cards. You can locate the CNC in the upper right of the card. Now, just to be aware, there are code cards from older sets that have the CMC down the left-hand side of the card. Ghostfire is a good example of this. Now, there are some cards that will have an X in the mana cost. So what that means is that you have to pay either one on up to whatever mana you have available and its other costs that it may ask. When you cast this card, or any card in general, tap it, the corresponding mana, or land, as some people would say, 290 degrees, either left or right. My preference is, I don't really have one on which way, but as long as you know what mana you're using versus the mana you aren't using is the important thing. Whereas for Kalia, we'll tap mostly to her left. That is true. I'm mostly comfortable tapping all my mana and my creatures and everything to the left. I don't know why, it just it looks weird and feels weird when I do it to the right. Well, right's always right. Very funny. If a converted mana cost is a number surrounded by gray, then that can be paid with any type of mana. If you see a sun that has to be paid with white, a water droplet is blue, a skull is black, and a fireball is red, and a tree is green. The two exceptions to this rule is a waste, which is colorless and represented by a diamond. This has to be paid by a land that is either a waste or produces waste mana such as a field of ruin. The other is Pyrexian mana which is represented by a circle with a vertical line through it. This has to be paid with either two life or the color specified on the card. A good example of this is the Pyrexian metamorph. The converted mana cost on the card is three generic mana and a Pyrexian mana. In the text box on the card it states that you can either pay one blue mana or pay two life. So a secondary type of lands or mana is what's called non-basic lands. These can be known as dual lands or tri-lands, a couple different lands of those. Um, these still don't have a CMC cost. They have some sort of condition though, uh, stated in the text box. 
can be something like this land enters tapped or this land gains life, loses life, be tapped. There's a lot of different things to do based on basic lands. A good example that is preferably my favorite is the Boros Garrison where it enters tapped and I have to return a land to my hand. But once that's said and done and the land untaps on my next turn, I actually get one red and one white mana. I don't get one of each. So it is an important thing to have these dual lands, especially if you're having a multicolored deck, trying to help your your mana curve and stuff like that. And we'll talk about mana curve um, later on. And the, there's still no downside of not playing those, so might as well play them as long as no one destroys lands. Some of them also, uh, with these deals, they make some creatures unblockable, deal damage, pull creatures away, turn creatures, you know, turn themselves into creatures, and a whole bunch of other different things with these non-basic lands. A third option of being able to attain mana is through the use of artifacts. Now, these cards can actually be tricky because first you actually have to be able to get them onto the battlefield. These can either tap for one mana, up to 20 for example, or more. An example of this would be the Nyx Lotus, which is an artifact and taps for a devotion of a specified color at the time of use. Artifacts can either be colorless and paid for with any color to cast, or there can be certain CMC requirements that must be met along with any other stipulations stated in the text box. An example of this would be the Mox Opal. It has a CMC of zero, and in the text box it has Metalcraft, which is an ability on the card. The stipulation it has is that you cannot tap to gain that one mana of any color unless you control three or more artifacts. With this on the table, it can count for itself, but it cannot be used unless you have two other artifacts along with it. These could be other artifacts, artifact creatures, for example the Silver Mirror, or an artifact land like a Dark Steel Citadel. And there are other ways to get your stuff from artifacts, like their like chromatic lantern will make all your lands tap for any color that you need. Hence, filling out your deck in these to make sure you get your mana and things you need for your deck. So last but not least are creatures that can be used to add mana. Um, that's, well, once they're on the battlefield anyway and going through their 70 sickness phase then they can tap to add mana. And myself and a few others in my player group, uh, we refer to them as mana dorks. And okay. as doofy as that sounds, the moniker actually really fits. And so that's just kind of how we reference them or you know, when we ask what a creature does on the battlefield. Most of us are just like, oh, nothing. It's a mana rock. It's a mana dork. Just because it's just funny when somebody asks. And those funny names do stick around. One of the cards of a um, quote-unquote mana dork is Landwar Elves, where you pay one green, put on the battlefield, and once it's past the turn and back onto your turn, it's done. It's summoning sickness. Now I can tap for that additional green mana. Yeah. Yes, they're small. They're like one ones, but they help out to ramp out quickly. So that way you can get ahead of the curve on cards. The only thing that you really need to worry about with these guys, or a mana dork in general, is that your opponent may or may not take a chance or a cheap shot and target them to kill them, because nobody wants you to ramp any faster than anybody else. 
So if they get a chance to take it out from you, they just might. Either that or they'll start blowing up your lambs. Yeah, so those dorks are one of the easier ones to remove just because there's so much creature removal in general. The battlefield is the next thing that we're going to end up talking about here. Um, this is where the game takes place, you know, for no offense, obvious reasons. Um, the setup for this varies from person to person as well. For most people, your deck or library is either placed on your direct left or your direct right. And then your graveyard is actually placed below that. Um, so what goes in your graveyard are spells that have been used, i.e. Um, instants, sorceries, creatures that have died during combat, enchantments that have been destroyed, or... Just about anything that is used in the, um, in the game that gets... You know, other than exile cards, which that is in a totally separate pile because they don't exist in the game. Because there are some ways that you can have some graveyard recursion with some decks and things that are used that. Speaking of graveyard recursion, I personally love to dredge without actually dredging. I've gotten away with it quite a few times. Not an easy thing to manage. And when it goes off, it's pretty crazy. So the area that we're going to be talking, the areas that we're going to be talking about um, for the battlefield is the bottom, which is the area that is closest to you, is where your mana or land would go. Then in the midsection, you would actually put your artifacts and your enchantments there. That's what I do. Again, everybody may have a preference on where they want what. And then finally, your creatures would be at the top or the front of the battlefield, which is actually the area farthest from you. The most important thing you need to remember when you are playing cards or casting them is if they have any triggers, where they are, and what they do. Because honestly, a missed trigger is the worst thing that can happen because sometimes it can be a game changer or a game ender if you are not paying attention. And that's an important thing is you want to make sure that you know what your cards do and everything. So that's why we you know, suggest that you know, the way you set up your board, and the biggest thing, just remember what your cards do and how they work because... No one likes to lose a game that they could have just won if they remembered that one trigger. I am guilty of it, and Sakashima, I am pretty sure you have been the oh, victim of that once or twice as well. Yes, I've definitely been a victim of that as well. So, you know, take our mistakes and use it use it to better yourselves with it. So now that we've talked about how the battlefield is set up, now the next part would be understanding how a channel works. So first, uh, we will start with the beginning phase. There's three parts of that. The untap step, which basically means turning your cards that are tapped upright again. The exception to that is if a card has been specified that it does not untap on your untap step, or it has been forced to stay tapped until another turn or permanently. Yeah, there are ways around that happen around that. And then the second part of that would be your upkeep and manage the pay the abilities for triggers, stuff like that, icunity the community upkeep or life gain, loss, things like that. Then you would go to your draw step and draw your card from your library. Draw your first card for turn, which would be the card from your library. That, that's true. You would draw your first card for your turn. There are ways around that that adds additional cards and whatnot to it. So then after you draw your card and everything like that, you go into your main phase. So most of the time you would play a land if you have one in your hand. And then you would go and cast spells from your hand, which includes creatures, sorceries, and other spells that you want to cast at that time. Sorceries can actually only be cast during either your main phase or your second main. 
They cannot be um, cast during combat. That's what instances are for. Right. And combat is a very, very tricky thing of it. And that's why there's two main phases as well. So, also on that note, with combat, um, especially during it, um, only cards that can be played are those with the higher instances or they have flash. Those are the only two cards that can be played at that time, like you said. There are also cards that may have split second on them, which means that after that is played, nothing else can be played after it, if I'm actually thinking of that correctly. Yes, you are thinking of that correctly. Nothing else can be played until damage is resolved or into the to the next phase. So, being like if it was a main phase, then we go with, you can't play anything until combat. So, as you're finishing up the stages of your main phase, you're actually going to go into the beginning of combat. This is a point where you would actually declare which creatures you're attacking with. And if you're going to be attacking with them, you either tap the cards left or right 90 degrees to show that you are actually using them uh, to start combat. Now, there are some creatures out there that actually have an ability called Vigilance, which means you don't actually have to tap the card. It can actually stay upright and not be moved just the way it is. Now, keep in mind, you can't attack the, with the creatures um, that you just put out this turn. Same with its abilities, just like we talked about with Landlord Elves, because it's got something that's called Summoning Sickness. So unless they have haste, like a Flame Wake Phoenix, or you have some way to give them, give them haste, an example of that is Anger by putting it in the graveyard, and it gives all your creatures haste. Another key element that you need to worry about here is timing. You need to pay attention to timing. This is where you and your opponent have the ability to play cards that are instances or things that have flash. Um, in such cases, they can actually prevent all combat damage. It can pull creatures from combat. And those are just to name a few. Yeah, because that list can go on and on and on for the number of instances that you can use during that point in combat. Then the next step after you could declare attackers would be the defending player be able to choose blockers. With that, that player can use any creature that is untapped and may only use one defending creature to block one creature at a time, unless stayed away otherwise. Like, for example, a spike-tailed ceratops actually can block either an additional creature each combat or an additional seven creatures. I will actually have to double check that for you guys. So, and you can double block with a defending creature, but only one creature at a time can block one creature unless stated otherwise like this, the spike. Now, if you think about it, any creature has the ability to block even though you just summoned it. Summon sickness does not affect a creature's ability to block. The only way that it cannot block is either if the creature attacking has menace and you don't have enough creatures to defend yourself because menace states that you have to have two creatures to block that one, or if the card itself states that it cannot block. Now, just because your opponent is attacking you does not mean that you have to automatically defend yourself. Um, unfortunately, there are some consequences that can go with that because certain abilities on creatures' cards will actually trigger if you don't block or if you do. For example, if you only have a mana dork, your land of war elves on the battlefield, and that's the only creature that you have, which is helping you try and ramp to get other things onto the table. If you throw him in the middle of combat, 
you're going to run the risk of losing him, killing him, or not being able to get him back when you actually need him because you're a little behind on mana. So we don't want to do that. I wouldn't do that personally because, I mean, those poor Lana War Elves, they would have sacri been sacrificed for no reason. Sad face. They, there's a lot of uses for them, but it's also sometimes where it gets to point in your life total where that stopping that 10 damage at that one moment can make or break a game. So it's a lot of weighing in between. This is also another spot where an instant would actually come in handy for you because you can actually buff a defendant creature, i.e. like a righteousness. Um, but you have to be careful about timing. Yet again, you know, this is really important because this card can actually only work on a creature that has been declared as a blocker. You can't just throw it out onto the table and be like, oh, whatever creature I decide, you know, an attacking creature gets plus seven, plus seven. The card specifically states that it has to be a creature that has been declared a blocker that gets plus seven, plus seven in that moment until the end of turn. That's why instances can be very tricky, but so helpful in the same time. So then after attackers and blockers have been declared, the combat damage step uh, will a trigger both Blocking and attacking creatures are dealt damage according to their power and toughness, which is located on the bottom right of the card. A creature's power, its number on the left, is more than the creature's toughness, the number on the right. That creature is destroyed. Then, if an attacking creature is unblocked, it gives damage to that defending player, and that player loses that much life. For example, one of my favorite ones is... A Meyer Boa. He is a 2-1, and if he attacks and is unblocked, you, Sakashima, the defending player, who's not defending, would actually end up taking 2 damage. Yeah, it's nothing major, but 2 damage? Somebody just poking you with a stick? Sometimes can get a little upsetting sometimes, especially when you have nothing on the field to defend yourself with. Yeah. I have been there, and you have been there. Especially when it, you don't have any mana or anything, especially since it's just... Maybe one drop. Boom. If I'm going to be perfectly honest here, though, 99% of our games, you end up mana screwed beyond belief. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that one. So now it's actually the end of combat. Creatures that have been dealt damage go to either the graveyard or exile, depending on the circumstances. And this is where you would actually begin your second game. If you haven't played a land, now would be the time to do so. Um, then you would actually play any additional creatures if you have the mana to cast them. Same with artifacts, sorceries, or enchantments. Um, then you would go into your end phase and then the end step. Your cleanup step is where any of your creatures that took damage are now healed. Anything that was left on the battlefield is fine. Then it's your opponent's turn and you kind of go just back and forth until you pretty much kill each other. Yep. Or whatever comes first. You have the ability to mill out a library. Um switching life totals and killing them off, and so on and so forth. Any other suggestions for game wins? Um, one of my favorite game wins is just having that the ultimate win con of just having... Not even attacking people is my favorite ultimate win con. Just constantly doing da damage to people without even having it there. Yeah, your Giants and Wizards is notorious for doing that, and I hate it every single time. I'm still working on how to get around that. It's blue. Everyone hates on blue because blue is the best. 
Blue is not the best. That is where I completely disagree with you on that. Blue mana. But then again, remember, everybody hates a blue player. This is very <laughs> true. And I may be the villain. All right. I know that was a lot of information on this episode, you know, just doing a basic rundown of everything. Um, so I apologize if your head hurts a smidge, but you know, everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, that's all for us for today. Again, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to us here on our podcast at No Sense Magic and on our Twitter, also No Sense Magic. So for now, that's all. And this is a place where there are no rules, just nonsense. From us to you, may the odds be never in your favor, and may the heart of the cards prevail. So, with that being said, tune in to us next time as we talk about the Exile, Maximum Hand Size, Sideboard, Color Choices, and themes that a deck may have. And don't forget, on our Twitter, feel free to post any questions you may have. If we have described something incorrectly, then please correct us so we can actually make it more accurate for you guys. And we'll, we'll update it on like the next episode, you know, with those questions.